Infused with the scent of potpourri Films we commit to memory Crossing the felt ropes Watching from home on my TV Looking at all my eyes can see They tell me I view obsessively Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, we're a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at ObsessiveViewer.com, and while every episode will always be free, if you'd like to support what we do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer for a ridiculous amount of bonus audio content, including TV and book reviews, immediate reaction movie reviews, Patreon potpourri episodes, movie commentary tracks, and much more. Um, those are on a tiered kind of system so if you just want like tv and book reviews um or or, yeah tv and book reviews and immediate reaction movie reviews uh that's two dollar level but you could go up to five or ten dollars to get the full thing it's all broken down on patreon.com slash obsessive viewer uh, recently I've been doing, uh, read-along reviews for the Expanse book series, um, which is a blast. Like, there are nine novels in the Expanse. I'm doing six episodes. Uh, I've, I've broken up each novel to six different parts, and I'm recording reviews of those individual parts. So it's a long, long process and everything, but it's a blast because that book series is amazing. Um, elsewhere I'm also doing... Um, uh, still doing Last of Us episode reviews that I'm uh, behind on, but I will get to that very soon. <laughs> get back to that very soon, but a bunch of stuff there. Anyway, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and you can find me on social media, including Letterboxd at obsessive viewer, uh, everywhere, basically. And today on the show, we're going to review the latest entry in the Scream franchise, Scream 6, which is currently in theaters. And we're going to round it out with a brief non-spoiler probably non-spoiler review of the new hulu movie boston strangler which is on hulu um and joining me today uh to facilitate those reviews or to help with those reviews i don't know is returning guest uh my ifj colleague colleague and friend sam watermeyer whose letterbox activity can be followed at letterbox.com slash sam movie man and whose written work can be followed and found at midwest film journal Sam, welcome back to the podcast, and uh, how's it going? Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be back, and uh, I'm doing well. Nice. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of returning course. champion. Yes, returning champion, Sam Watermeyer. Uh, the last episode you were on was actually, uh, I think it was, was it January? Um, we did the breakdown of the IFJ uh, top movies of the year of 2022, um that was uh yes episode 388 no no it wasn't um <laughs> it was episode 387 it was uh um in december i think uh yeah so welcome back thanks it's kind of fitting that the last time i was talking about our ifj award winners because uh now we're gonna talk about the oscars right yes oh yes because this is the first episode of obsessive viewer where we uh where we're on the air um after the oscars uh so i'm excited to kind of pick your brain about some of the winners and and uh <laughs> pick your brain like a certain 
raccoon in one of the <laughs> movies um but but yeah so uh yeah we can get right into that but first um what are like what is some stuff that you've posted online recently um in terms of film criticism and everything do you want to, I, I want to kind of give you the floor to share what you've recently um posted around the internets because you've had a really good year so far um in terms of written stuff and everything oh thanks man yeah um yeah, uh, my most recent review, I guess it's kind of an old review now, but it's mm. a repost of my review of The Lost King. Now that that's out uh, nationwide, mm. I originally reviewed it when it screened at the Heartland Film Festival last year. Um, and then, let's see, I've also reviewed uh, Boston Strangler recently. Mm-hmm. Um, for that one, it's cool to note that um, that film is included in quill magazine's ongoing list of the best and worst journalism movies yes um so the society of professional journalists um which puts out quill magazine uh partnered with midwest film journal to create this list of journalism movies and and we add to it um you know once in a blue moon and and we thought with the release of boston strangler it would be a good time to add 10 more movies to the list um so you can uh, check out the full list at uh quillmag.com um let's see i've also uh posted an essay on the david cronenberg movie um existence Mm -hmm. Um, that's part of Midwest Film Journal's uh, Cronenberg series this month in mm-hmm. honor of his 80th birthday. Um, I love so, the, yes. oh, sorry, I love the name of that uh, series, <laughs> that essay series. Ooh, David. Yeah. <laughs> it's just great. Um, yeah, it's called Ooh, David. And he, I have noticed, especially after watching Existence, um, all of his movies are very sexual. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's always something sexual going on thematically uh, or visually, um, like in Existence, which is about a virtual reality video game. Mm. <clears throat> the characters' controllers are like fleshy. Oh wow! Um, and they plug them into their spines via this like umbilical cord like thing. um and uh yeah he he that's kind of his signature with his sci-fi stuff like Mm -hmm. fleshy technology yeah um, which is interesting i Um, yeah i I, for me like i've seen a few of his movies but there's a lot of blind spots for me and i think it's just like body horror stuff really really gets to me like i can't I, there's something about it that it just it really makes me uncomfortable so like i i need to face my fears and see like that and even like it, his son's stuff like i i i saw um possessor I, I that was pretty mild that was that was fine um but for some reason i i have a hang up like i don't want to see uh, um i'm nervous to see uh oh god uh infinity pool um yeah that's that's Brandon Cronenberg right Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's his uh, latest. Yeah. I think it's hilarious that you're kind of queasy because <laughs> you're so obsessed with Scream. I know. And that's so weird. And like it's 
it's interesting because like after Radio Silence took over the franchise for Scream, like Scream Scream Twenty Two and Scream Six have been like the most wildly violent. violent. Yeah, um, and I'm like kind of all for it, but I don't know you. I don't know. It, it, there's just something that makes me very uneasy um, about Cronenberg's work. Uh, like I, I didn't see um, uh, Crimes of the Future either for that reason. Like just that. I don't know. I can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Crimes of the Future was hyped up way too much. Mm. Like I think Cronenberg himself said he expected people to have panic attacks and yeah. to walk out. And I was like, when I was watching it, I was like, when am I supposed to have a panic attack? Like, <laughs> at the thought of this never ending. Right. <laughs> like, it's just, I found that movie so dull. And, wow. And, and the, the gory <laughs> parts are about as gross as Han Solo cutting open the Tauntaun in oh. Empire, Empire Strikes Back. Wow. Like, almost said Empire of the Jedi. Jesus <laughs> <Yeah>. Christ. Um <laughs> Uh, like it's just very cheesy and and mm. I don't know. Um, hmm. yeah, I just yeah. I found that one to be kind of a dull rehash of stuff he's done before. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I didn't mean to detract you or or to, to do that. Like, what else have you done? Um, uh, oh no, no. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't like pushing us into the Oscars. Oh no, 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 no. I, you're fine. Uh, it's your show um but yeah uh speaking speaking of movies that i think we were talking about that before yeah we were talking about that before like even recording but uh movies that i've missed out on because i haven't been going to the movie theater as much as i thought that i would be these last couple of months um you also wrote a review of cocaine bear um which i want to see but i just haven't gotten around to it um how was it is it fun (laughs) uh as fun as it seems like it would be it it's it's fun and forgettable mm-hmm. I, I mean it's the kind of thing you see on a saturday night mm. and you walk out and say oh that was fun okay and then <laughs> you know promptly forget about it i mean gotcha. it's it's uh it's actually it works surprisingly well as kind of a family drama okay um hmm. it's like oddly sweet um <laughs> And, you know, the the stuff with the bear high on cocaine is is fun. It's it's a little tame. I mean, mm-hmm. it probably could have gone gone a little crazier, but um, it seems like the movie's also trying to appeal to, you know, mass audiences. Oh, so. yeah. Um, hmm. In that sense, it succeeds. I mean, it's it's an oddly crowd-pleasing movie about a, bear high on cocaine (laughs) so that's a very odd specific sort of movie right it is definitely speaking to a very very specific demographic i'm sure Um, (laughs) but it's good to know that there's a uh that there's that there's a good um middle ground with that with the family drama stuff i guess so um yeah uh yeah so the oscars happened um some time ago um I did not watch the Oscars, um, but I did see some highlights and everything kind of overall. Um, I was, I was pretty like, there was nothing in terms of winners that I was, that I was, um, 
upset about really. I was pretty pleased with with pretty much everything. Um yeah, yeah. How did you feel about the Oscars this year? Um, I you know, I thought they were fun. Um, I thought Jamie Kimmel was great. Um I enjoyed his uh kind of biting remarks about um the slap from mm. last year <laughs> and how, you know, uh no one really did anything right <laughs> um, when that happened they they gave will smith an, a standing ovation which was yeah odd. um <laughs> but uh yeah i thought he was funny i um you know it's really cool to see a, a movie like everything everywhere all at once um sweep yeah um, in so many categories and to see uh, you know, um, Asian representation mm-hmm. um, with Ki Hu Kwan and Michelle Yeoh winning, oh, yeah. um, you know, Dan Kwan. Um, and I mean, Ki Hu Kwan winning, um, like, uh, just what a, what a delightful personal comeback. Oh, absolutely. That, you know, that was to witness and to see him receive um the oscar from harrison ford from indiana Mm -hmm. jones you know yeah uh, the temple of doom being his first movie Mm -hmm. um you know like what a cool full circle moment oh absolutely in Um, his speech man i like i watched it the next day and i was just like i i was tearing up like just genuine tears of just like I was just so happy for him. Like he just seems like it's it was so wholesome and just beautiful. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Me too. And and to see you know his Encino Man co-star Brendan Fraser yes. win Best Actor was great. Um, oh, I yeah. I was worried that Austin Butler was going to win, and I say worried just because <laughs> you know with the whale Brendan Fraser portrayed a character we've really never seen before on right. screen at least portrayed sensitively mm-hmm. um and uh, you know i wanted to see that win over you know elvis i mean yeah it, it's just that would have been such a traditional sort of best actor win and and i'm glad the, the oscars didn't go that way Me um too i like yeah, like nothing against honestly, like Austin Butler's performance was really good. Like I will say that I his performance was the best thing about that movie, but it's also you can you can boz Lerman up as much as you can, as much as you want in a in a music biopic, but it is still a music biopic. Like it is just it is the by my estimation, it is like the it is the most worn out type of movie. And there was nothing like all the stylistic choices were unique enough for like a in a visual context. But you like I said, you can dress it up any way you want, but it's still just that same music biopic with, you know, the same as like um, Rocket Man from a few years ago. Like I Mm -hmm. like as 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 interesting and as like flourishing as that was, I guess, would be the word. Um it was still just really dull and boring to me. <laughs> like I just have such an aversion to that. So I'm glad that, uh, the Academy, you know, awarded a movie that is, is a bit more substantive than, um, than, you know, the, like you said, the kind of, 
uh, normal pick, I guess, or expected one. Yeah, definitely. And why music biopics keep being made after Walk Hard is beyond me. Yes. I mean, that movie really like put the nail in the coffin on musician biopics. It really did. It really did. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I like him trying to come up like the wrong genre died. Um, but <laughs> like, but like, it exposes their exact formula. Exactly. Exactly. And, it's like, and then movies kept coming out after that with yeah. the same formula. And it's like, oh, yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. And even then, like, they have, um, th- there's a long, li- like, obviously, Walk Hard is the prime example of that. But, like, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping is in that similar vein. And then even last year with Weird, the Al Yankovic story, which I loved. Like, that's the same kind of thing. Like, and I'm sure that there's going to be just millions of other, like, music biopics that come out. Um, and I don't know. It just, it's a genre that just never, never really uh, grabs me. Yeah. Yeah, the the worst one that has been announced is this Michael Jackson biopic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Jesus Christ, really? <laughs> yeah. You know what's um, really interesting, and and I don't know. This is if y- it's it's the weirdest thing on Twitter. Like I don't I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to bring up like the controversy around Michael Jackson or anything. But um, like when uh when that documentary was on HBO, um, and people were like, oh yeah, well that is a lot of uh, a lot of evidence <laughs> to uh, to levy at at him and everything like that. Maybe maybe all that stuff was true and everything. There is a contingent of Twitter that will like make it their sole objective online to just just like search Michael Jackson's name on Twitter and then defend his name anytime anyone says anything negative about him. And it's like. It's this weird deifying kind of pattern that I see with anything really. Like I, I just saw um, uh, Justin Roiland, who it, the 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 embattled co-creator of Rick and Morty. Uh, he posted something on uh, something on Twitter about how like because they because they dropped the ch- domestic abuse charges against him, and uh, he had posted this long th- th- thing saying like yeah you know I knew that you know the truth would come out and everything and and like now I'm ne- and now I'm here to you know uh, try to repair my name and everything and then like everyone was like well well yeah but y- you like in the fallout of all of that all of these very creepy and unsettling dms that you sent to underage girls came out like do you have any comments on that um but like if you go through the replies there are people that are still like well do you have proof of that like yeah you do it's right there (laughs) like yeah it's it's just the internet's weird man (laughs) Well, like all controversy aside, mm-hmm. when when you have an amazing music video like the one for Thriller, uh, yes, like, do you really need a recreation of that? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I just I don't like cinematically. I don't really understand the point of a Michael Jackson biopic. I just yeah. because there's so much out there already mm-hmm. to consume. 
It's like, what are we? We've seen all of this. Yeah, yeah. We've seen him do the the moonwalk. Like, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm just like <laughs> just thinking of the uh, the just like the contrive the the um the prerequisite like contrived scenes that will be in the biopic like he's uh, like he's like as a kid he's he's watching tv and then he sees like the news comes on and says like this is the anniversary of of the moon landing and he sees like neil armstrong walking on the moon and then he's like that that <laughs> gives me an idea <laughs> like just like the most contrived like crap in music biopics um yeah, yeah. so i don't know it's it's uh, we'll see i'll i'll eventually see it i'm sure but um that is i i can't i honestly don't think there's another like genre or subgenre of movie that i have less of an interest in than music biopics i just yeah i i don't know and i don't have a problem with biopics in general it just mm-hmm. it seems like music biopics follow the exact same sort of structure Right. And, and, you know, there's always the, the performance montages and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the greatest hits and whatever. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I agree. I agree. It It is, it's the most formulaic of like that, that I can think of. Like, it, like you said, biopics are fine. Um, I'm excited for Oppenheimer. Um, specifically because I know that that'll be unique. I like, I've fallen a little bit out of favor on Nolan, but I think that he'll at least give something unique with it. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, (laughs) uh, Jamie Lee Curtis won best supporting actress. How'd you feel about that? Um, I thought that was really cool. Uh, I mean, mostly just to see someone who started as kind of a genre star, Mm -hmm. you know, with her being a scream queen to see her get this sort of a list recognition, um, was really cool. Um, I thought her reaction was really endearing. Mm -hmm. I think she said something like, Oh, shut up when her name was announced. (laughs) um angela bassett did not look happy um, no she did the thing though Bill, um <laughs> i guess she did the thing yeah. that just um, that whole thing that that whole that whole thing was just in my head for like the numerous days after it um yeah yeah is she even in much of wakanda forever um she is like and she does a really good job um okay she has like some some really good pivotal scenes um there's there's a lot that she gives to the role in terms of grief but i mean that whole movie is like is like an mcu grief movie <laughs> um because of chadwick boseman's death of course but um there there are some really good performances in it but I also okay, well, you don't yeah. have to yell at me. No, I mean, no, I was no, just no. no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, but anytime, anytime, like, um, I don't, I don't know. I feel like anytime, uh, comic book movies like that are nominated, it feels, it feels less like 
it was an earned nomination and more of a like we're recognizing that this you know fandom driven blockbuster machine exists and I, I i don't mean to be as reductive as i'm sounding with regards to black panther of course um but it just feels more like a response to outcry of like kind of the same thing of with um them put putting putting the nominations out to 10 best picture nominees from five um it just feels more like a like okay, we'll we'll recognize more mainstream movies, and I don't know. I just kind of feel like that feels like a little bit. I don't. I don't know. It it feels a little bit not pandering, but um, kind of like a uh, like good job, buddy. <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, I I know what you mean. I mean, this year, I think the obvious sort of good job, buddy uh, nominees mm-hmm. were like Avatar too. Yeah. Um. You know, maybe Elvis. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm gonna take that back. <laughs> I don't. I'm. I don't know what I'm saying. No, you're good. I. I think Elvis could fall in there a little bit. Um, Top Gun Maverick also maybe. That uh, seemed like a legitimate contender, though, to me. At least. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I was actually looking at past nominations uh, recently, and we've come up long way from um uh in terms of not of the kind of movies that are nominated like i was looking at the nominees in uh gosh like 1998 Mm. and it was uh shakespeare in love and elizabeth oh we're both nominated for best picture and it's like wow wow artsy fartsy (laughs) art house period pieces jeez um, so it's nice that you yeah. to see stuff like Top Gun getting recognition. Right. And I guess in 98, um, oh, I'm looking at 90, 98 for 97, I think. Because uh, I've got, uh, the winner was, uh, what is it? Um, am I in 98? Yeah. Um, Titanic won in 98 for 97. So I think I need to go to 99 for uh, what you're looking at. But um yes okay yeah and shakespeare and love one elizabeth life is beautiful oh yeah that was the year that saving private ryan got ah snubbed um yeah hmm. um yeah so anything else with the oscars did, oh did you see the video of uh the like backstage video of brendan fraser and uh kihu kwan kind of like like him coming up and like like talking to him and stuff like them just kind of oh. sharing yeah, that was sweet. Yeah, that was that was really that was nice. Yeah. Um, so their two wins in particular, I think, were the highlights. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah. So, any other thoughts on the Oscars, um, or do you want to go into our reviews for the evening? Ready for Scream, baby. All righty, let's do it. So, Scream 6, uh, Scream Vi, Scream VI is um, is upon us. Um, came out a couple of weeks ago. It uh, got, in terms of box office numbers, I think it uh, is the highest performing 
uh, movie in the franchise, which is incredible. Um, of course, it is a direct sequel to Scream 5 or 5 Cream or Scream 22, uh, which came out last year, directed by Radio Silence, Matt Bettinelli, and Tyler Gillette, uh, along with their producer, Chad something, can't remember, um, <laughs> written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. Scream 6, I'll go ahead and uh, bring us into it with, our, with a plot summary, and then we can kind of just talk about our feelings on it. But uh, the premise for Scream 6 is, in the next installment, the the survivors of the Ghostface killings leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter in New York City. Uh, the movie stars Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, Mason Gooding, uh, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Hayden Panettiere, and Courtney Cox. Um, so, Sam, uh, let, uh, let's go ahead and talk about Scream. In terms of like the franchise overall, um, what is your kind of experience with it? And also before you go, I'm before you, before you answer, I'm going to say that, uh, on Patreon, I have commentary tracks for scream, scream, two, scream, three, scream, four, uh, with Mike, uh, our, uh, recurring co-host Mike, and we're going to do scream five and scream six eventually, but that is on Patreon at the $5 level. So go and, uh, support us on Patreon to get access to that. But Sam, the scream franchise. How do you feel about it going into Scream 6? Love it. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I got to go back and listen to your commentaries. That, oh, be yeah. Fun to, that'd be fun to, to watch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, um, I, I pretty much love all of these movies. Um, you know, I have my quibbles with some of the later ones. But to me, uh, you know scream is like pizza mm -hmm. it's like even if it's bad it's still pizza yep um and none of them have been outright bad to me um i to kind of preface uh this with my history with the franchise um you know i was a kid when the first one came out but i was i was very aware of it i remember really mm -hmm. wanting to see it Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, I had actually watched the opening scene, um, when I was very young, uh, when it came out on video and I watched it in my aunt's house. Um, and she lived kind of like out in bumfuck nowhere. Oh, nice. So, after the opening scene, I, which I didn't even get through because I was so scared. I think, <laughs> I think I turned it off after uh, Ghostface says to Drew Barrymore, "I want to see what your insides look like." Nice. Um, I couldn't get past that point, um, so I turned it off, and then I just like looked um, down my aunt's driveway at just like forest, and I was so scared. That's um, awesome. Yeah, to 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 watch it in kind of a secluded place was really fitting. Nice. And uh of course, you know, I I um uh watched the whole thing later on. I think the mm -hmm. first time I saw the first scream all the way through was um probably like 5th grade. Nice. Um uh, I, I love the original. I mm. it's, it's iconic. I consider it a classic. 
Um, and I pretty much love all the sequels. I think mm. uh, Scream 2 is a blast. I'm actually um, kind of a Scream 3 apologist <laughs> um, or staunch defender. Mm-hmm. I think that one uh, um, takes the meta stuff to a really cool level mm-hmm. um, by exploring the the movie within the movie stab um you know there's this great uh uh chase sequence through uh the stab set of woodsboro uh that's cool that's really cool on a, yeah. on a visual and meta level by far for me the standout of that movie is is that sequence it's it's incredible yeah yeah and um I remember, I think Scream 4 was actually the first one I saw in the theater. Nice. Um, I was in college and um, I think that one's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, you know, Scream 4 and Scream 5 <clears throat> to me, you know, sometimes feel a little bit too much like return to woodsboro uh, yeah. um i mean i i don't know i i appre- i enjoy scream five but at the same time like it's mostly a walk down memory lane mm. um you know it doesn't really feel like kind of a bold leap forward like scream six does to me mm-hmm. But I understand that. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a, a love letter to Wes Craven, really. And yeah, and uh, you you put it perfectly when you said it. it's like a bear hug for the franchise. Exactly. Yes. Um, so I, <laughs> and, you know, to me, the killer's motivation in that one isn't quite as interesting, but I feel mm. like Scream 6 uh makes up for that in an interesting way which i'm sure we'll talk about later oh yeah um but scream six uh i thought it was a blast Mm -hmm. i you know i wanted i wanted a new york slice baby (laughs) um and and it it gives a delicious Mm -hmm. new york slice Um, yes it does and it really like gets going right away. Yes. Yes. Like I I think for for non-spoilers, I don't want to give away too much of the opening sequence, but what I love about these these movies, what what I'm dubbing the radio silence era of the Scream franchise is that each one of their installments, Scream 5 and Scream 6 has subverted that opening sequence in some unique ways. Like the first one um with scream five that is a big subversion because tara survives like like it's not an opening kill which is just something that threw me for a loop a little bit and then scream six changes the game in some pretty unique ways and uh i thought that that opening sequence was just was was absolutely just chef's kiss brilliant um yeah oh yeah um that sequence really impressed me um, because, you know, right away it puts you in a, a hip downtown New York restaurant. Yeah. 
um you know the the girl on the phone is a a film studies professor actually i think she actually teaches a course on slasher movies yeah which is great Mm -hmm. um it comments on the sort of evolution of communication in an interesting way Mm -hmm. she's just texting uh uh, her date Mm -hmm. and he asks if he can call mm-hmm. and it's like that taps into a dread we all have now <laughs> that's a really um, good point oh yeah yep <laughs> and and it's funny to watch that and then remember when people would just straight up answer the call from ghostface right not knowing who it was back in the 90s you know before <laughs> yeah. caller id yep um and it's cool that the franchise hasn't just let go of the communication element oh because that is an important part i mm-hmm. mean ghostface calling people um is a motif that i feel like they've actually given some thought to which is nice. oh yeah and that kind of gives the i think one of the one of the kind of standout elements for the scream franchise is something that's it's it's referenced in Scream Five when when one of the killers says like um, the problem with the stab movies is that uh, there's no like there's no um, returning villain that's coming back from the dead there's no Jason there's no Michael Myers or anything it's so you need to make your own and what I love about the Scream franchise is it does it's kind of like have its cake and eat it too where we have like unique who done it. Um, mysteries at the center of each film and different killers different motives for each movie but that connective tissue is the phone calls and the work of of roger jackson who has done the voice for for ghostface since the beginning and i had i had heard i listened to a podcast where radio silence was on i can't remember if it was uh dead meat or or king cast but they were talking about (laughs) how they uh how they how they were working how they worked with Roger Jackson for this one and how he had like how they basically direct him to to do the the voices and everything and then uh they had talked about how like at one point they were like having conversations with him or like emailing back and forth and i guess like they had come down with covid or something so they had to briefly shut down production or something like that and so they said they said that like yeah and he was just he gave us like a bunch of uh, a bunch of advice on like handling covid and everything like like when because when he had it like what helped and everything and then they were just like yeah we were just like oh thanks ghostface <laughs> it's cool um, <laughs> which yeah so i don't know i just i love the the phone call aspect of it is 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 one of those tenets of the of the franchise that i don't think can or should ever be broken um, although they come very close to breaking it, in my opinion, in Scream 3 with the voice changer, uh, oh. application of it, which, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, if you do listen to the commentary tracks, Sam, <laughs> I think Scream 3 is going to be an interesting one for you. Um, Mike and I just kind of we like we pick it apart pretty pretty severely and i don't hate it i don't hate any of these movies i i love this franchise but man scream 3 just doesn't work for me uh a lot of the time so yeah that's fine it's okay to be wrong um 
yeah, I mean, I guess the voice changer thing is a bit far fetched. Mm. Um, no, I love science fiction. Um, mm. I'll say that. <laughs> Well, I guess it's technically not really science fiction, but it's, you know, it just didn't, it didn't work for me. Um, Um, There's another point in this one. I won't spoil Mm -hmm. it, but um, a character is talking to Ghostface and she asks, uh, can I call you back? And (laughs) it's really funny because his reaction is like, huh? I love it so much. That like breaks his brain, which is great. Or breaks, I'll say breaks their brain. Right, right. You don't know. Yes. You never know who Ghostface will be. Yes. And if it's one person (laughs) or multiple. Right. Are we officially going on record and saying that Ghostface is non-binary and their pronouns are they and them? I think we should. Yes. All right. We're we're doing it. Um, okay. But yeah, we will talk in spoilers about that phone call because I, oh man, I loved that sequence. Um, yeah, this this movie is a lot of fun. Um, but to to lightly, not necessarily lightly spoil the opening sequence, but to just kind of jump off uh, this conversation to talk a little bit about that, um, and we'll talk in more specifics and spoilers, but. There is a level of um reverence that the that the that these two movies Scream and Scream 6 have for the franchise and I felt that when the phone call began at the beginning of the movie because for a moment because of the context of it I thought like it it kind of it kind of threw me off a little bit because I thought like oh oh man are they are they bringing back that like voice changing thing? Are they going to do like different voices <laughs> because of the context of it? And like, I don't know if that's an intentional thing that they did as a nod to scream three, or if it was just something that they just worked out because of like lulling us into that false sense of security and then going into the subversion of the expectations for the opening sequence. But did it give you any vibes of scream three in that moment? You mean like when it switches from the date's voice to Ghostface? Or? When 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 she is on the phone with the date, um, in particular, like when it when it has, when when we just hear that person's voice and not Ghostface's voice, like did it make you think that maybe they were going to do like what were maybe we can just talk about that in spoilers because I think that that would be a little bit tricky to navigate, but. Um, for me it just it felt like a little bit like scream three because scream three opens with cotton getting getting the phone call from a woman and then it eventually leading to ghost face and then this is kind of that same sort of scenario um right i'll say this and this isn't gonna spoil it but yeah it is interesting it's an interesting choice because in the original scream it's just the voice of ghost face right away right and we totally buy into that. No, oh, yeah. So I guess, yeah, I guess there's not really a need for a voice change. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that they chose to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I it didn't really bother me, though. I just kind of bought into it. Oh, um, yeah. To be clear, it didn't bother me at all. It just kind of made me think, like, I, I was wondering if they were intentionally, like, doing that just so... Because, like, the expectation is that it would be Ghostface's voice. Like, that's the expectation from the jump. Um sure. But, yeah. So, yeah. We can talk about that more in spoilers. Um, 
Well, and I guess yeah. it's funny because the audience knows right away, like, this isn't going to be her date. Right, right. Yeah. You, you just know as a Scream <laughs> fan, like, this is totally Ghostface. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. Which I love that. I, I love that the movie... And I love that the movie takes place in New York City. That's been a big part of the promotion of it, obviously. it's It's been, like, a big thing about... Um, about the movie and the marketing and everything is New York new rules or whatever. But it's what I love is that it's, it's still a scream movie. It, it does some very unique things with the New York city setting. Um, but it is still, it is still a scream movie. Like it, it doesn't rely on the, like it's, it's not like any big, like, they're not being chased through the through like the Statue of Liberty. They're not like going like we need to go to the top of the Empire State Building to to find Ghostface. It's just like yeah, there's a bodega scene. Yes, there is a bar in Manhattan scene and uh very like a very cool like um ladder scene. I'll say that, but it's. It's still it it isn't it isn't a gimmicky change of location, which I really appreciate about it. Um, yeah, how did you feel about the New York setting and the way that they executed it? No pun intended. Um, well, I think what's interesting is that um, the set pieces are very like self-contained. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Ghostface doesn't really interrupt or. I should say disrupt like big public gatherings. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the point is that this mayhem can uh, sort of happen in a big city mm -hmm. without disruption. Like that's what's disturbing is that someone yeah. can get stabbed. Someone can get stabbed on a, on a subway mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really affect New York traffic all, all that <laughs> right. much. I, I think. And so I think that's interesting. It, there aren't these like big sweeping set pieces where yeah. he like wreaks mass havoc. Um, yeah. You just absolutely. see him attack individuals in large gatherings without really um anyone noticing right yeah and that that's that's a really good point plus i think that the the um the choice to make it set around like like the week the week of halloween basically um was a really interesting choice and it makes me very excited to go back and watch it again because of all of the easter eggs that are there because i think i i had read where they had they had crammed so many Easter eggs with just costumes, like in the subway scene. Like there is, there are, I think like something like 50 to a hundred different like costumes there that they had talked about it on, on one of the podcasts I listened to where um, they had said that uh, they wanted to do, they the, like they had a list of costume ideas that they wanted to incorporate in it and like uh uh paramount or spyglass or whoever is in charge uh was like well we need to figure out like um 
legally how we can handle that and everything. <laughs> and then, so they were like, oh, we're not going to be able to do that. And then legal came back and I guess they were like, oh yeah, you can go ahead and do whatever. As long as they're not, as long as the people in the costumes aren't doing the things that the character is known for, uh, you can do whatever. So they were like, okay. <laughs> and like, they just crammed as many references as they could. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm really excited to go back and watch it again. Um, yeah, I mean that subway sequence was the first, uh, clip that was really revealed yeah. in the marketing. And I just thought, you know, what a brilliant idea, like a bunch of people dressed as ghost face on a subway yep. along with other people in costumes because it's Halloween. Like, yep. Just that so is freaking a, cool. just a great concept for oh, a sequence. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so what did you think of the, uh, this, this, what did you think of the returning characters? The core four, as they're dubbed in this movie, uh, Melissa Barrera's Sam, Jenna Ortega's Tara, Mason Gooding's uh, Chad, and Jasmine Savoy Brown's Mindy. Uh, they're the returning survivors from Scream 5, and then we also have returning legacy character, um, uh, obviously Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox, and uh, Kirby making her return from Scream 4, played by Hayden Panettiere. So how did you feel about all of these people um, in this movie? Um, I thought they were great. I, mm -hmm. I think they have great chemistry. I, you know, I'm not quite ready to say that they're as good as the original ensembles. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I think what's great is that um radio silence is continuing this theme of chosen family and yes. uh you know friends um kind of uh supporting each other you know obviously with this one it seems like everyone is uh keeping an eye out on Tara mm -hmm. who you know decides to just really live her life as if yeah. Ghostface isn't a threat. Um, of course, that makes her sister nervous. Mm. Um, but, you know, I uh, the same sort of, there was the same sort of dynamic between Sydney and the other Woodsboro characters in the mm. previous sequels. And, you know, they showed her frustration at not being able to live a normal life. Um you know, Tara wants to go to these college parties, but mm -hmm. her core four friends are always lingering around. And, yeah. um, you know, that, that's an interesting theme and I'm, I'm glad radio silence has, uh, you know, continued exploring it. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. That kind of, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's fashionable to do this, but like, it is it is ingrained in the horror genre really the like survived trauma sort of motif throughout you know the entire genre really and what i think is really unique and interesting about scream as a franchise is that we have this these these returning characters who are bound by that by that kind of um shared trauma basically and here we have basically a mostly new crop of characters that are were introduced in the last movie and they are now carrying that and again it kind of goes back to the fact that um scream as an idea as a franchise is something that like it is it is 
the brand is is Ghostface, and Ghostface can be anyone. Ghostface is uh, something that could be lingering and could not be lingering, but is not like this, this supernatural being. And I think that that's really interesting in terms of delving into the character's trauma, because, like, you can tell that Tara in this movie is... She's she is she's not wanting to confront, you know, like that that experience. She's not wanting to confront uh, the fact that, you know, they are famous for something that or they're they're kind of living they're they're survivors of this massacre and they are now targets for other people that are psychopaths to come after them. Um, and she doesn't want to confront that. And you can kind of understand like yeah, if you go through like that's that's kind of a healthy reaction in the real world because like you want to move on, you want to get away from it, but she's also being reckless and wanting to like put herself into positions of of um in into precarious positions that may not be to her like may not lead to her overall safety, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, but I just think it's, it's really interesting, uh, for me to word salad all over the podcast. (laughs) No, no. And I'm glad you brought up, um, the healthy reaction to trauma. Cause Mm -hmm. I was, I was going to say, you know, what ties the survivors and Ghostface together is that they're both, uh, Ghostface is, is with the exception of the fifth movie, always dealing with trauma as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the ghost face killers, um, all have their own traumas mm-hmm. and the only thing that separates them from their prey is how they deal with it. And it's always obviously in an unhealthy way, man, that is, yeah, that is, that is shit. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> Um, that's, that's really good. I like that. The, the kind of not parallel thinking, but the kind of like mirror of the victims versus the, the killers. That's really interesting, man. That's, that's really good. Um, yeah. Well, I, I take that as a high compliment from you being a a scream (laughs) super, super fan. Well, thank you. Uh, Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. And I guess that's kind of why the fifth one, the ending at least Mm -hmm. just doesn't quite land for me. I, I feel like the motivation, uh, just isn't, it's just not personal and it, um, yeah. Uh, but you know that's criticizing a very small part of the movie i mean yeah but also just... yeah and and that's that's a that's a pretty divisive a, de- a divisive element of the franchise i would say because that's something that it is the only the only motivation that isn't tied to a personal grudge or a personal experience or anything and it's like my reaction my fanboy reaction to it last year and i still hold true to it is that man that means that it literally opens it up to anyone being Ghostface. Like it doesn't have to be like a personal thing. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but do you want to go into spoilers for Scream Six? Uh, yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, first, uh, what did you what did you rate it on Letterboxd, and uh, where would you rank it in the franchise thus far? Um. My immediate rating after seeing it was three and a half out of five stars. 
thinking about bumping it up to four. Nice. Uh, just because the more I think about it, the more I like it. Nice. Um, I think I I felt like the ending didn't quite land for me in the mm. theater, but the more I think about it, the more I enjoy it. Um, where I would rank it? Um, hmm. Let's see. I'd probably do Scream number one, mm-hmm. um, the nineteen ninety six original. Uh, Scream three, Scream two, um, Scream five, four. Well, wait, no, no, no. I don't know. This is so hard. <laughs> I I don't want to rank them right now. Okay, that is fair. Um, I have a list on Letterboxd um, that is the franchise ranked thus far. Um, I have uh, number one is Scream 96. There, uh, There is no way that that will be dethroned. That movie is way too important to me. Uh, read my essay on Midwest Film Journal about Scream and Scream 2. Um, but I ranked at number two is actually Scream 22. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Uh, and then three, which is basically tied for two, honestly, at this point, um, is Scream 2. Uh, then this one, Scream 6, is number four, um, at, uh, rated at four stars. Um, and Scream 4 is number five, and Scream 3 is at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you. I know, I know, but I can't, um, I, yeah. Yeah, no, there's... And it makes yeah. sense that Scream 22 would be up there for you because mm-hmm. it is such a love letter to the first one. Absolutely, absolutely. It is, it's, and it, even with, no, yeah, I can't, there's nothing really I can fault it for at all, really. It's just, it's, it's beautiful. I've, I've, I think I've watched that damn movie like eight times. Um, I've seen you on Letterboxd. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just it is <laughs> it is a weirdly comforting comfort movie for me um and yet i'm still terrified to watch a david cronenberg movie <laughs> so uh okay so let's go into spoilers for scream six and to do that i'm going to go ahead and play a clip from the trailer uh when we come back we're going to be spoiling scream six if you want to skip that check the show notes for timestamps. show notes of course can be found at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov391 so here's a clip from the trailer and then spoilers on for scream six this isn't like any other ghost face What is this place? A shrine. We've got to lure him in. We execute him. Hello. Let's play a game. You know you're like the 10th guy to try this, right? It never works out for the dipshit in the mask. Maybe. But there's never been one like me, Gail. I'm something different. That's why I'm going to shoot you in the fucking head. So (laughs) spoilers on for Scream 6. Sam, there's a lot to dive into with this. Um, 
first let me let's let's talk about the opening sequence here in just a second but first i want to get a read on our thoughts on uh kirby's return because uh i forgot to bring that up again in the non-spoilers uh how'd you feel about hayden panettiere uh reprising her role from scream 4 more than welcome nice i just yeah she's badass um (laughs) And she is a an FBI agent in this one? Yes. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I wish that I hadn't been spoiled on that. Like, I had seen, like, an internet, like, rumor thing on Twitter. Um, but I thought that was an interesting angle to, to bring her back, which it tracks really well for the character, and it makes perfect sense. Um, I There was something about her involvement in this movie that I... I kind of loved as a red herring. She is, she's very much painted as the red herring of the movie. Like there were moments like leading up to the third act reveal where the killers are revealed, which we'll talk about obviously. Uh, but there were moments leading up to that where I was like, they're, they're pretty, they're leaning pretty heavily on Kirby being the killer, uh, or at least one of the killers. And I'm just like, man, that would be so wild. And like the movie even, like it does this thing where it is hinting again it's it's playing into the fan base like fan theories about Stu being alive and how they want Matthew Lillard back and everything and it's a fun like wink at the audience but there's like there are moments where like let let me just kind of let me go through my my mental state when like the movie is playing out like Basically, Bailey is uh, played by uh, Dermot Mulroney. He is a cop who he like they have that one specific scene where he's like, hey, check and check with the FBI uh, and make sure that she's like legit and everything. And I'm like, "Okay, that's going to come into play later. Um, And then as it's leading up to it and she's like, yeah, we'll do a kill box thing and we have this all set up and everything. This is how we can do it. I'm like, "Okay," And then when she's in the shrine room and she's talking about or she and Mindy are talking and they see the TV that fell on stew. She has this line where she's like, where she's like, well, if you, if you believe he's really dead and it's like, that's a fun wink at the audience. That's a lot of fun. And then when the red herring is like coming, like coming to the forefront, I'm just sitting there like, are they, are they going to do with, are they going to make Kirby the killer and her accomplice be Stu? Is like Stu going to come back and those are going to be the two killers of this movie? And like, and like as it was unfolding and as my brain was doing that, I, I'm someone who like, I, I love Matthew Lillard. I think that he is one of the best performances in the entire franchise because he is just off the wall, crazy, like awesome. But the dude's dead. Stu is dead. He's not coming yeah. back. I do not want them to bring him back in any capacity as like, I don't want that. But in the moment I'm like, man, that would be wild. If they, if like we have two returning care, like that would be okay. That would be interesting. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. But Kirby is a lot of fun. I wish that there was more of her, like interacting with Mindy, like that one scene that she has where they talk about horror movies is fantastic. Um, and the how she kind of brings it all together with a found family thing at the end is really nice. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. How did you feel about that and the red herring and everything? Well, I when they get to the ghost face shrine, mm-hmm. that's when I suspected that Kirby might be the killer because 
she had this in the fourth one she had this encyclopedic knowledge of the stab movies yeah um and that the shrine also is awesome oh absolutely yeah um, you it's this shrine with like little bits of um I guess like real life memorabilia <laughs> yeah. from the actual killings. Yep. Um uh that was really cool. Um Yeah, which that like <clears throat> that is such an interesting way to like I mean with with Ghostface like his his line at the at the end of the opening sequence which we will talk about the opening sequence of course. Um but his line about who gives a fuck about movies before he kills uh Jason is just like that is such an interesting way to bring us into this movie that is completely like it doesn't care about the stab franchise or anything instead it is about real life ghost face killings and it's such an interesting interesting angle and i guess this is i have a soapbox that'll go on a little bit but i had like this theory when i saw the ghost face shrine in the first trailer and the theory that I had was that, like, oh, I bet because because Ghostface says, like, oh, he's not like other ghost faces um, uh, in the trailer and there's a shrine to, like, there's actual, like, memorabilia about the actual killings. I'm like, what if the killers are actually just, like, a group of Ghostface enthusiasts that are killing people because they, they're obsessed with Ghostface? And that's why, like, the opening sequence, like, real, like, I was like, oh, shit, they're really... They're really playing that up if that's the case, because like it's I thought it was just like, oh, someone in the group is killing another one in the group. Um, but that didn't come to play, and that's that's fine. But uh but the shrine aspect of it is just really, really interesting. I, I thought that was a really good way to uh pay homage in a different way for the franchise. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's also cool is that um you know, these movies are reminding us that uh so that memorabilia is from actual killings not the stab movies and it's reminding us right. that the stab movies are based on actual killings which mm -hmm. is kind of fucked up oh yeah and i don't know maybe there's like an indirect commentary there on our obsession with true crime yeah and the way we kind of casually obsess over it even mm -hmm. though you know it's ultimately so tragic yeah um but yeah, I, I think uh, I'm glad that because <clears throat> Scream 2 and Scream 3 and Scream 4 lean pretty heavily on the stab movies. Yeah. And I feel like these these last two are kind of reminding us, you know, those movies are based on things that actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I don't know. That's that's interesting. Yeah. And that's always been this this like little uh running thread throughout it and i i like that the the fact of it the like history of it or the real life at angle of it is being brought so much to the forefront in these last two movies because like in scream 2 you have the the girls in the movie theater lobby like saying like yeah i don't want to see this movie because you know a bunch of kids got killed uh, a couple years ago and this it's based on this and then uh and then yeah, basically Scream 4, I had another example, but anyway, um, so it's just, it's really, um, it's really interesting to see a tie back to the actual, um, actual ghost face killings. And 
there was a thing like uh there was a line that i wish would have been said but i think that it's just me like it's it doesn't hamper the movie at all for me but like when bailey is talking about the evidence and how like people are like like they're looking they're looking at the shrine and they're saying like how did how how did whoever did this how did they get like all of the like all of this evidence and everything and bailey's like well you know cops cops like money so you know they probably bribed him bribed him or whatever like i kind of wish that there would have been like an added line where he's like and also all of these people are dead so it's not like they were awaiting trial or anything like it's easy to get the <laughs> evidence because there's no there's no like trial or anything right. um, <laughs> that's funny yeah um but do, do you want to talk about the set pieces and kind of start with the opening sequence a little bit um, sure. to kind of dive more into it? Um, the moment that that was another thing, the, the voice um, of Tony Ravalori, um, like it's, he has such a distinctive voice that I'm just like, okay, okay. So it's Tony Ravalori. I'm, I wonder where they're going with this. Um, and then they reveal, like we have the ghost face, reveal of him being a ghost face in the beginning and then he becomes like the real the real victim of the opening sequence how did you feel about how that entire opening sequence played out and the kind of changeroo of it uh how did that play in your head well i think you know revealing a ghost face within the first five minutes is pretty bold yeah um I mean, I knew that he wouldn't be the ghost face for the rest of the movie, but mm -hmm. it was still a fun subversion of expectations. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the actual ghost face, because he's so like cocky about this murder he's pulled off. Yeah. Um, and you, there's a scene where he's kind of bragging about it over the phone with his buddy, mm -hmm. um, who is, you know, seemingly going to partner with him in mm -hmm. killing his ghost face. And then, you know, the real ghost face, um, just kind of makes him look pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> um, by, absolutely destroying his friend who mm -hmm. he finds in a fridge yes um that was shockingly violent um, yeah or gory uh yeah I, I really loved um uh that opening sequence me too um and you know the the suspense in knowing that the date is going to be Ghostface, knowing that his friend is going to be Ghostface, um, you know, it's like we all know the formula, but it's still mm -hmm. really fun to watch it play out, which I think is a testament to the the how this franchise kind of stands the test of time. Oh, absolutely. Each opening sequence is its own like horror short film. And it's just it it's so interesting how each one kind of gives us a, a little peek inside like the motives of the killers and, and the kind of general attitude of of what the movie is going to be. It's setting up the movie and the general vibe of it. So like Ghostface saying, who gives a fuck about movies? That's, you know, because they're talking about real Ghostface and and um 
like Scream 5 is all about stab trivia. So it's like, yeah, it's fandom. And, um, you know, the other ones. So it's just really interesting to see that play out and, and to see it play out so well is, is really fun. Like when Ghostface is taunting him and like when he, when he kills him, uh, like he, cause, cause he talks about how, um, Jason, Tony Ravalori, he talks about how like, oh yeah, when I stabbed her, it was like she was an animal and she was nothing. And then like Ghostface is taunting him as he's stabbing him saying like, do you feel like an animal? Do you feel like nothing? I'm just like fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, but I also really am fascinated by the fact that like, there is this (laughs) <laughs> like the the way that this movie the opening sequence subverts everything uh by having us a it it leads us down a path thinking that we're going to be following one of the killers throughout the movie which i thought was really interesting and i was a little nervous about because um it it was like if that's if that's going to be the case it's, it'll be interesting but also I mean, we kind of had a little bit of that with, with Halloween ends to his, to an extent, like last year. And I just felt like, well, that'd be a little weird. But then the the reveal of it is really satisfying. But I just love the idea that, like, had had Richie's family not been involved, like, there would have been an entirely different set of, of killings. And, like, that is... There's this, like, deep-seated uh disturbing aspect uh to the movie that's kind of an undercurrent throughout it that like ghostface is not a supernatural being or anything but the idea of ghostface is like ever present like like mm-hmm. had had richie's family not been involved in anything they still would have been in danger because there was going to be a whole other scream six um i just find that to be really really interesting and unsettling in a different way um it yeah. is interesting. Like, I don't know if there's really any other horror franchise where someone can just assume the identity of the boogeyman or like the yeah. boogeyman is just picked up by, you know, someone else. Um, yeah. Like even yeah. that. It, it, yeah. And that I think is, is one of the, one of the main things that I love about this franchise is that it's not only that it's not, it, it it's, that it's someone who can take up the mantle, but it's also someone who makes the choice to do it. And that Mm. brings it to this ground level thing. Like you can have people like, uh, like you can have like the whole run in the Halloween franchise where Jamie is kind of infected with, um, with Michael's like spirit or, or whatever. Um, even a little bit with, um, from what I remember in Halloween ends, kind of that same vibe with, um, with the main character there getting kind of the taste for it and everything. But there is no, like, there's no like mystical ghost face person who is like, who's like infecting someone to do that. It's like someone is making the personal choice to go and murder a bunch of people in a ghost face costume and that is unsettling to me in in the kind of best way. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and it's well. What's scary is that like becoming Ghostface becomes a valid, a seemingly valid choice. Yeah. Oh because yeah. Because so many others have done it. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like it seems 
like it has been justified. Right. I mean, obviously it's not, but yeah. Um, you know, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. There was, uh, there was, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There, one of the fun things about this movie is that <laughs> there are three killers, which in my brain that corrects that, that corrects something for me in my brain. So now there have been, like before this, there have been five movies and nine killers because there are two two killers per movie, except for Scream 3, which just had the one. And now we have like six movies and a total of 12 killers. And I'm just like, that that's that's right. <laughs> like that 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 is mathematically, <laughs> mathematically right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um yeah. So uh yeah, set pieces we can run through uh however many we want to the bodega scene was pretty much all told in the teaser or the trailer which is kind of a bummer i kind of wish that they they would have would have withheld that but how'd you feel about the bodega scene um i was bummed out that it was essentially just what we saw in the trailer um it's still i don't know there's something satisfying about seeing Ghostface pull a shotgun yeah just because it's so shocking mm-hmm. and you know the knife has been his signature for so long mm-hmm. or their signature I'm sorry yes um <laughs> that uh and I don't know I I heard some people kind of had a problem with Ghostface yeah using a gun but ghostface has always ended up using a gun absolutely yeah and um I, yeah yeah so i don't really see what the problem is me neither and like i'd heard that that kind of criticism too when the trailer came out and i'm just like first of all like it's clear from the, it's clear from the trailer that it's it's not that he went into the bodega with the shotgun like he is like Ghostface is is has the opportunity to take the shotgun <laughs> right which which makes more sense um, it doesn't become his new weapon no 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 not at all um and also on that on that front um i think that there's there's this level of um obsession from people around the internet about like kind of going into like oh who killed who like who who is the person uh in this scene when there's multiple killers and everything and it's this movie kind of uh i think that this movie kind of plays with that a little bit or or maybe doesn't necessarily play with it but it basically with the different masks um like we have bailey has billy's mask and Quinn has Stu's mask and um, Ethan has Nancy Loomis's mask. Um, But they, they're all like differently degraded. Like Billy's mask is the most degraded of it. So like when, when Bill, when, when Bailey has, when Bailey is under the mask, like, you know that that's him because he has that mask and he is the one in the bodega. And it makes sense that he's able to, you know, get the shotgun in and everything. Cause he is a cop. He has police training. <laughs> like right. obviously he's going to be able to, uh, get the upper hand and everything. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's weird to me that it's weird to me that people would have like a, um, uh, I guess a stigma about 
Ghostface with a, with a gun because it always ends in in gun violence. So yeah, I don't know. Um, well, and I mean, I'm you know totally anti-gun. But, oh yeah, same here. But complaining about that in a movie where so many people are killed is kind of silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you mentioned something I had never really thought about before, which is that when it when they have multiple killers. I don't think any of the movies, at least until their conclusions, have been explicit about which killer kills who. Yeah. That's interesting that that's kind of a mystery. Yeah. And and it's it's fun to think about for sure. There are and there are scenes and, and moments in the movies that kind of reference it a little bit. Like um, in Scream 2 at the end when Billy's mom is like, uh, she says, Randy, uh, uh, Randy uh said something negative about about billy and i got a little knife happy <laughs> um, oh right right yeah and then there's a great great scene um in scream 1 it's after after tatum is killed when uh stu is in his doorway and billy kind of pops up in the doorway and then like you just see a look that he gives to Stu. he like raises his eyebrows a couple of times and it's like him signaling to him like yeah i killed tatum for you we're good um and then that's oh interesting i hadn't really thought about that oh yeah so that i think that that's basically the only examples of of that um uh but yeah but uh, there are like whole like youtube videos like dissecting like okay this is where this person is in the movie so that means that this person needs to be the one that's killing them um and i'm just like fine cool (laughs) like all right um (laughs) Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then Scream Five. I'm I'm just geeking out at this point. Um, in Scream Five, um, <laughs> before Dewey's death, um, when they're facing Ghostface and uh, Dewey grabs like he's he's getting Richie out of the way, um, and then Ghostface comes out and then uh, Dewey shoots Ghostface, um, and Ghostface goes down and everything. As as they're running away, you can see Richie like lo- like looking like worried at Ghostface because it's Amber and like he's, you know, she he is worried that she just got killed, <laughs> and it's just like the little like details there. I just I love it so much. Um, yeah. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> bodega scene good. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I also really I thought the uh, sequence with the ladder um, mm-hmm. was really intense. Yeah, um, I was a I, little surprised. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, no, that's okay. I, <laughs> you know, I mean, these movies don't. I don't really get scared like I used to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm mostly you know. Uh, I don't really watch these movies to get scared right. necessarily. Uh, but I thought that sequence was pretty tense and mm. pretty scary. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, that impressed me. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the payoff of that was really cool. Like, uh, Annika falling and, and like she bangs her head on the dumpster and like they show it like very just, it's, it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> it's it's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, but i'm surprised that that scene worked for me though i will say because it seems like it seems like borderline the most contrived sequence that i can think of like because like it's all set up with danny 
he's like he sees Ghostface across across the alley in the room, and so he's trying to call, but he's not getting through. So he airdrops a like he airdrops a picture, I guess. Um, and it's like just like you know maybe just yell like throw something at the window or something. Um, and then like his, his, like the answer is to get a ladder. I I don't remember if there was an explanation of there, there being a ladder, like why he got the ladder. But anyway, it was, it felt a little bit contrived, but it still worked for me because it was, it was really intense and, and, uh, suspenseful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've kind of already talked about the subway sequence. Yeah. That was, um, what I appreciated about that sequence is that the marketing kind of really played it up to make it, to make you think that they're all in one subway car. Um, but separating them was, was a lot of fun. Um, it made me very nervous. It was, it was really cool. Yeah, that was good. Um, yeah, I will say, although I appreciated the use of the city, Mm -hmm. I do wish it was a little more New York-y. Oh, I mean, I yeah. I get that it wasn't filmed in New York. Right. And I think, uh, yeah, our our friend and colleague Andy Carr kind of mm-hmm. confronted critics in his review when he said, like, what did you want? Uh, chase through the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> uh, I just thought, well, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Sue me. That'd be cool. <laughs> it um, really would be. Um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, I think the subway sequence alone, I mean, I, is very strong. Oh yeah. Um, I guess I just wish, I don't know, maybe the ending hadn't taken place, had taken place in more of a city sort of setting. I don't yeah, know. no, I agree that that is something I appreciate that the ending does take place at like in the shrine and everything. I think that that's suitable for it and especially suitable for what like the motive and and like the history of it and everything but there is something that kind of feels like maybe it should be a little bit more new york-y i guess um not that it's not yeah they hyped it up so much yeah uh the new york setting Mm -hmm. and i mean i guess it's not fair to like compare hype to the actual movie but Mm -hmm. Still, um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I would have liked my slice a little more New York. <laughs> sure. For me, like it, it didn't bother me that because I, I do feel like for me, the bodega scene, the subway and even the ladder scene, plus the um, opening sequence just felt like it it was enough for me for the New York vibe. But um, but yeah, well, that's I, fine. I you don't have to yell at me. again. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> this is where I changed to the voice, uh, to the, to the ghost face voice. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, and, and, uh, there was something, oh, oh, let's talk about, um, the Gale phone call. Um, yes. like that's a big set piece. First of all, the setup for that I thought was brilliant. Um, because as the movie's going, like going forward and, and unfolding, um, they make a point to mention like, yeah, okay. The, like the rules scene with Mindy explaining that they're in a franchise now and all bets are off or whatever that felt fine. But, um, that, that whole thing set up that like, okay, it's, it's like they're doing like now we're in, we're in stab two. So now this needs to be bigger than that. And then, 
almost immediately after that, we get them setting up, trying to set up Ghostface. And like, as that's, as that is being presented to us, I'm seeing like, oh, there's a van that they're in to, to, uh, to kind of track the, trace the call and everything. They're in an open like park atmosphere. And I'm like, they're, they're riffing on the Randy scene. This is, this is setting up the Randy scene. And I'm just like, okay, that's, that's cool. And then Mindy says, like, says that in the van, she's like, this is, you know, this is exactly what happened. Like, this is how my uncle Randy was killed. And then, and then the switch up to have the call, uh, have Ghostface say that like, yeah, like tracing the call to Gail's house, to Gail's like penthouse apartment, um, was really interesting because to me, even though they didn't kill Gail off, not that they needed to, but that brought a certain amount of tension for me because in my mind, I am connected to the to the Randy scene from Scream 2. And then that transitions into a legacy character getting a phone call from Ghostface that historically very few characters survive. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I'm just like doing all of these like mental gymnastics trying to figure out like, oh my God, they're doing this and are they going to kill Gail? And then they damn near do. And I'm just like, this is this is awesome. This is just so awesome. Uh, so yeah. So how would you feel about the Gale scene? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, her, because I think it's only the second time she's talked to Ghostface on the phone just it is, herself. It is the first time in the franchise. Um, okay yeah which is so like that was another thing that i really loved about it is that the uh, at the beginning of the call Ghostface is like uh he he says um it's strange that you and i have never talked on have never talked on the phone before right. and like there's just something so chilling about that to me because it is uh, like no Ghostface is the same, but it's just interesting to hear the person doing Ghostface speaking as if Ghostface is an entity. I just think that that's a really interesting, interesting uh, line of dialogue, basically. <laughs> oh, cool! I hadn't really thought of uh, thought about that before. Mm. That's interesting, and it's yeah. also kind of like it's almost breaking the fourth wall and yeah. kind of talking to the audience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, cause you can assume that Ghostface has a knowledge of past events, but mm-hmm. it's also Ghostface basically saying to the viewer, like, this is a first. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But I think, you know, she definitely, you know, it's her first phone call with Ghostface and she lets them have it with both barrels. Like she yes. has some great lines. So like, great. So like, great. it never works out for the dipshit in the mask. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm gonna shoot you in the fucking head. Yeah. Like it's just awesome. Yeah. That whole like uh let me call you back or whatever thing is great. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> oh, it's yeah, the, beautiful. The fact that she uses that to find Ghostface. I mean, because mm-hmm. you know, she hears the phone ring, obviously. Yeah. And it's like using the the communication against him in such a simple way. Oh yeah. 
is is pretty oh, yeah. cool. Uh, so that was a great sequence. Yeah, and the moments where, uh, like, it, I can't wait to see it again because I, I want to just like absorb more of it and everything because the dialogue is just so interesting. Like, it is clearly like a big set piece sequence for the movie, and having like having Ghostface just taunt her and like know how to push her buttons, like talking about how, uh, like he 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 gets to she uh ghostface gets into her head by talking about dewey and how you know dewey's dead and everything and she couldn't protect him or whatever um and then like after she fires the fires the gun through the door and everything ghostface's uh, ghostface changes up a little bit and is like oh yeah you maybe you injured me and i'm really hurt now and everything and it's just like that playful psychopathy is just so so awesome uh yeah i loved it yeah i'm getting excited to see it again (laughs) (laughs) me too actually yeah Yeah. i think i might see it again nice nice um yeah but Um, uh do we do we want to talk about the the final reveal of the killers yes let's do that so this is maybe the point where i'm i'm a little bit um i'm a little bit not in love with it for for uh, for for the most part um i thought it was fine um i think that the like the reveal of it being richie's father and uh richie's siblings that gives it a very interesting um an interesting interesting vibe to it i think that it's a little bit um it's a little bit lessened by the quinn fake out death before the latter scene and like the reveal that they're all like avenging richie there's so okay <laughs> let me go on another little soapbox um friends of the show actually uh horror movie yearbook they're a great horror movie podcast from the midwest podcast network um horror movie yearbook they did their episode on scream six and one of the hosts had said that they wished that in terms of the motive of the killer they wished that they hadn't done um that there there's a line where quinn says that like yeah it was really easy to to spread a rumor that you were responsible for everything and that Richie was innocent, um, talking to, talking to Sam. And so there's a line where Quinn says like, yeah, I planted that on the internet. So people would, would turn against you. And one of the hosts of horror movie yearbook said like, it would have been so much more interesting if Richie's family was reacting to that theory and not actively participating in it. So that, like, what if they were like, yeah, you you killed, like, Richie, and we're going to murder everyone around you and stalk you and try to murder you, too, to, like, because you fucked with our family. <laughs> um, and I can't I like get that, that out of my head. Me, too. Much yeah. better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because what doesn't work for me, I guess, is, you know, Bailey is a cop. Mm-hmm. He knows his son committed these murders and that Sam was ultimately acting in self-defense. Hmm. It's just like, what's his fucking problem? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I, I just like this weird. And I don't know if he really explains like turning a blind eye to his son's crimes, 
but I at least I don't remember that. Right. But, um, it just doesn't really make sense. And I think, yeah, it would have been so much better if they were reacting to this idea that Sam was Ghostface. Mm-hmm. Like, that makes sense. Like, he thinks he's uh, seeking justice yeah. as a cop. And I don't know. The Yeah, there's something just, like, kind of morally obviously morally dubious about right his intentions and it's like can you like obviously he's a a somewhat rational person right so it's weird that he would like uh have no problem with his son's murders like i I just i don't i don't know yeah i from what i remember like the the most that it does is he he talks about how he was basically he basically indulged in Richie's fascination with stab and like that's that's where like he i i thought it was a nice touch that they had like the home movies and and like the little like fan films that that Richie had apparently made i guess they got like they actually um uh Jack Quaid uh gave them like a bunch of actual actual videos of him as a child um, and then he just dubbed over it with voiceover stuff, um, which I thought was, was really cool. But, um, having like, I think that that's interesting, but also I just feel like that, like that, I don't know. I feel like horror movie yearbook just ruined the motive for me. <laughs> Cause I like that. I like their motive so much better. Oh, absolutely. It, it just, it makes more sense. And I, I feel yeah. like that would have been so much more satisfying like yeah i just found myself i don't know when the killers were revealed i felt like the movie kind of fell apart for me a little bit i can definitely understand that i i i need to see it again but like it it does have that with with the scream movies like the endings like the reveals the killers they always have to have like like the the personal killer and the the crazy accomplice killer like each one follows that one of the shortcomings of scream 3 is that roman has to do both has to do double duty of that so like that is what kind of like mars that performance for me a little bit and here it's kind of a similar thing because bailey like like dermot mulroney it like goes for it. Like he is wild in the, in the finale. And I'm, I, I'm not sure if I love it or just like it a lot. <laughs> like in my head. And I don't know if this is necessarily exactly how he does it, but like when it's revealed, uh, they're like, Oh Bailey, it's you. And he's like, yeah, of course it's me. Uh, like, duh. <laughs> like what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't know. I think that there's, I think that uh, with time I would warm up to it more, but it, it is where it kind of is a little bit shaky for me. Um, yeah. And yeah. I guess when he says, of course it's me, I mm. had also kind of guessed before mm. then that it would be him and at least his daughter. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I didn't know that other guy would be his son. And yeah. I just, when that was revealed, I was like, no, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know. And I think the fact that Dermot Mulroney does ham it up so much, mm-hmm. I just, my instant reaction was like, oh, this is lame. Oh, yeah. Um, 
in retrospect, I kind of appreciate it because I've never really seen him like ham it up before. <laughs> right. So I, I kind of appreciate it in hindsight, but in the moment I was just like, Ugh, whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, the other kind of downside for me with that is that it, it is kind of a little bit, it's, 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 it's fine to riff on scream Two, but I think that it's a little too close to scream Two in that respect, because scream Two is the, like, uh, the mother of Billy Loomis seeking revenge for, Sydney killing Billy and it's kind of the same thing here and it's just it just feels a little bit a little bit like a re a retread um disguised as homage and it's in a theater again exactly exactly yep um which like well it's funny you can take it two ways there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff there are a lot of echoes of the past movies in Mm -hmm. these new ones. And you you can either think, Oh, that's cool. Or, yeah, that's just kind of lame and derivative. Yeah. Um, and I, that's a, there's a thin line between those. Like Mm -hmm. for me in the fifth one, when Nev Campbell says like, you guys are the most derivative of all the same house. Really? (laughs) I was like, I was like, I don't know if, I don't know if expressing the audience's frustration is really enough to make it clever. Yeah. Like I, I found myself, I mean, I do think the using the same house is kind of cool. Oh yeah. Um, Oh yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know if commenting on a tired retread makes it not a tired retread. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be like another element to it to to make it to make it less of a retread like like the house in in uh scream 22 last year um Stu's house is it's fine because they play it up they pl- they play with it a little bit and they even make it like Amber says kind of in in passing she's like yeah ever since my parents bought this place I become I, be, I became obsessed with the stab movies and stuff and mm. like it it makes sense but like here it's just like there's there's it's a little it's just a little too close to to what's come before um and having said that scream 7 um if and when it happens cuz it's surely going to happen um another shout out to horror movie yearbook uh they had mentioned that they would assume that they're going to do like a to follow the pattern they're going to kind of do a similar sort of riff of some kind on Scream 3 and maybe not f- oh. go full Hollywood but maybe do something like that and like that has me thinking like man e- even if even if I don't really like Scream 3 that much um there are ways that they can do that meta level thing with in a, in a way that would be unique and interesting since Scream 3 went so hard on the Hollywood satire thing they can do they they can do something unique while still paying homage to scream three in unique ways. So I don't know. I'm excited for that. Uh, if that's what, where they go, who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be interesting to see how they would riff on scream three. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, yep. 
Um, so I, uh, don't want to run over our time too much, but, uh, should we talk a little bit about, and then we can kind of wind down, um, talk a little bit about Nev Campbell. Like, did you miss her in this movie? Because obviously the, uh, background is that she was offered, um, she was offered a, uh, she was offered a, an amount of money to reprise her role as Cindy, Sydney Prescott, uh, that she felt was not suitable, um, given her entire history with the franchise. Uh, so she passed and that I respect the hell out of her for, I'm all for it. I like, absolutely. She needs to be compensated fairly. And I can't imagine how difficult it was to walk away from whatever they offered and walk away from the franchise or this installment of it. Um, but honestly, I'm I, like, it's a testament to the writing and the casting of this movie that I didn't, I didn't need Nev Campbell. I didn't need the movie to contrive a reason for Sydney to be in New York. Um, yeah. How did you feel about Sid's absence? Um, I, I mean, I, I love Nev Campbell and I love mm-hmm. the character of Sydney. I didn't really mm-hmm. miss her though. Yeah. I mean, I was fine following the, the core four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think Courtney Cox has a line like, you know, Sid chose her happy ending or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that I think that's good and that's mm-hmm. empowering. And um and you know, she shouldn't come back for a measly yeah. sum. Um oh, yeah. so I I thought it was fine. It, it didn't mm-hmm. really well plus like if you have these if you have Sydney like keep coming back, it's like I don't know. I think it's more, I think it's stronger of her to leave Ghostface behind. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like even at this point, like it's scream three and scream five both have, it has to do some light, heavy lifting to get her into the mix. Like by scream three, she's, she's isolated. She's reclusive and it takes, um, uh, it takes her, uh, getting a call, uh, to come back, I guess. Uh, she's lured back, I think. And then Scream 5, it takes Dewey being killed for her to get back. Uh, and like that to have like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in New York City. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang out with you guys. Like it doesn't, cause she has no connection with, with, uh, the core four. So I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah. Do you want to wind down this review? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so, um, any, any other thoughts on scream six? Um, and what are your expectations? What do you want to see in scream seven if, and when it happens? Well, I'll start with scream seven because I was thinking, uh, when you were mentioning horror, uh, yearbook, um, mm. and their theories, I was trying to think of like how could seven go in a in the same kind of bold direction that six goes by mm-hmm. going to New York. <clears throat> uh, oh, you had mentioned maybe it would uh, go in a Hollywood direction. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be really interesting to set a screen movie at a at some sort of film festival or maybe yes. a horror convention. Yes, <laughs> yes, um, yes. 
the core four would go to a horror convention or you know, mm-hmm. a horror film festival or something. I think yeah. that would be fucking awesome. That <laughs> it would be fucking amazing if they had like had like the movie set at like Fantastic Fest or South by Southwest oh, yeah. or some like some kind of like some kind of genre film festival basically. Um I had the idea and I didn't want to say it because like Mike and I have this whole thing where like I said, like me and him should write out like what we individually think Scream Scream Seven could be or should be, and then set it aside. And then when Scream Seven comes out, he and I would talk about it and then read those those notes for the first time in like a year, however long. Um, but Mike, if you're listening, like earmuffs. But <laughs> I had the thought, and it would be so cool if they did this that and it might be sacrilege sacrilege for the for the genre itself but if they made the opening sequence um like like just imagine like the the um like paramount spyglass entertainment whatever logos coming in and then you have like um the like signage of a horror convention and it's like now the the cast the like a cast reunion of the first stab movie and like mm. somehow incorporate the like the ghost face killing into that and i i haven't worked out how it would fall in and everything but just establish it as going back to like fandom and then do like a film festival thing like maybe not even make it a horror convention make it the film festival a reunion thing and then and then like yeah i don't know and ha- yeah there's there's so much they can do um yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm giddy for it. I'm excited. Um, I I really kind of hope that that's the direction they go in because me too. I I just think that'd be really cool. Oh yeah. Um, I can't really think of anything that would be cooler than that. I know yeah. there was like a fan, uh, 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 like a fan idea for something like a cabin in the woods setting oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's terribly exciting to me mm-hmm. um i just that sounds kind of boring yeah um there's a cool poster for mm-hmm. it but yep. um yeah i think a film <laughs> a film festival or a convention is the way to go absolutely absolutely um and then of course there is that fan art of the poster of scream seven set in space <laughs> which hey man <laughs> anything's possible <laughs> i'm all for it i'll i'll watch it oh yeah same here oh yeah um okay so that's our review of scream six um let us know what you thought of uh of the movie and everything and then um i i don't want to keep you too much longer sam but do, do you want to do a very brief like blurb review of boston strangler or are we running out of time uh, I can I can talk about it real quick. I mean, okay. I, I don't have a ton to say about it, really. Honestly, me neither. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna l- let's go into a brief non-spoiler review for Boston Strangler, which is streaming on Hulu. It's a Hulu original, written and directed by my uh, Matt Ruskin, uh, starring Kira Knightley, Carrie Coon, Chris Cooper, Alexandro Nivolo, 
uh, Rory Cochran and David Desmalchian. Oh my God, I just messed that up. <laughs> Desmalchian. Uh, the premise is uh, Loretta Laughlin was the reporter who first co- connected the murders and broke the story of the Boston Strangler. She and Jean Cole challenged the sexism of the early 60s to report on the city's most notorious serial killer. And I have a brief clip from the trailer I'm going to play, and then we're going to go into a non-spoiler brief review of Boston Strangler. The city is for some glamorous, stimulating, prosperous. Only recently has it become dangerous. Jack, I think I found something. Three women were strangled over the last two weeks. You're on the lifestyle desk. You're not covering a homicide. I think the murders are connected. Another woman was strangled, just came over the wire. I'm killed in the follow-up. You don't have a story. How many women have to die before it's a story? So, uh, Sam, you wrote a review for Midwest Film Journal um, of uh, of Boston Strangler. I read it today. Very good work. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, and and you, you enjoyed this movie, I think, a bit more than I did. I... Ended up rating it two and a half stars on Letterboxd. I kind of felt like it was a little bit dry in terms of kind of similar, not as, not as, I'm not going to be as eviscerating as I was about music biopics, but like these kind of um, true crime investigative journalism movies kind of follow certain patterns. And I feel like for two thirds of this movie, it very much follows those tropes and patterns and everything. Um, to the point that like I was sitting there, like when, when a phone rang in the movie, I was like, Oh, this is the moment where she's going to get like a threatening call of some kind. And, uh, and then another scene where she's, uh, she gets notification of one, another killing. Like, I'm like, Oh, I bet this is where her husband's going to say like, Oh, were you kidding? Like, you know, like how, like you can't, you can't just leave the the family like this. Like, yeah, you know, someone was just murdered, like, and she's covering it for the newspaper. Uh, but anyway, like by the end of it, 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 it swung around for me because it kind of goes into media a little bit and, um, in, in a unique way. But, uh, for the most part, I just thought that it was, it looked good. It was, it was acted very well, but, um, didn't leave too strong of an impression for me. So how'd you feel about Boston Strangler? Um, it, it doesn't do a lot to stand out from mm-hmm. other true crime journalism movies. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the standout is obviously the story of these two female reporters, um, uh, covering um something that at the time would have been dominated by male reporters Mm -hmm. um and it's you know it's inspiring to see them uh kind of rage against the system and and uh you see how the boston police department um didn't handle uh the killings very well right which um was apparently the the case in real life as well mm. um <clears throat> yeah i mean it's just yeah i thought uh kira knightley and um carrie coon were great together mm-hmm. i like that they you know they're very different personality wise but they kind of show how they feel this sisterhood between them mm-hmm. um and you kind of get a sense that they feel a sisterhood with 
you know, the victims of the Boston Strangler. Um, yeah. that, you know, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no I was just going to say that classic, like, giving voice to the victims and, and right. giving a voice to victims that are not, that, like, people in power do not care to give a voice to. Um, I, I liked right. that, the, the resilience of them to... Um, to kind of speak up for the women that were being murdered, um, in, in shining a light on it, shining a spotlight on it as it were. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, I, I did. And I, I did think that that was a strong uh, aspect of it. And, um, Oh, you you hear actual passages from Loretta mm-hmm. McLaughlin's reports, mm-hmm. um, which are cool to hear because she didn't her style wasn't, uh, you know, just the facts. It was, mm-hmm. um, you know, she she had a very engaging writing style um, and kind of uh, wrote these articles as if they were horror short stories mm-hmm. Um so it it's cool to to hear those. I, I mean, I think it, I think it it works on a on a surface level. Um, I, you know, it it, it kind of gives you what you want. It. I do wish that it hadn't fallen victim to some of those tropes, like you know, you mentioned yeah. the spouse who's not supportive. What's interesting is that he is supportive in the mm-hmm. beginning. And he even tells her, like, you know, no, go go to the office, do your work. And he praises her work. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, that's kind of interesting to see. And then, yeah. of course, there's the scene where he's suddenly upset about it. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I, I think it's a pretty good movie. Um, mm-hmm. I It made... Uh, like I mentioned, the uh, Quill magazine's list of mm-hmm. journalism movies. I believe it's uh, so we have 170 movies now. God, that's amazing. It's a little hard <laughs> to gauge quality though, because sure. you're like, like Boston Strangler, I think, is number 66. And it's mm. like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> right. Is it good? Yeah. Um, so I don't. As the list gets longer, it's a little harder to gauge, mm-hmm. like exactly, like you know, how the ranking reflects the quality. But, right. um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, sixty-six is pretty high. I think. Oh yeah, I think the the girl with the dragon tattoo, the David Fincher version, oh. is like fifty-nine. Wow. Okay. Um, so. Uh, I, I, I guess I was a little higher on Boston Strangler than I thought. Mm. Um, but I think in terms of being a journalism movie, it shows that it does a good job of showing this kind of tug of war between journalists and uh, the police department. It's yeah. almost as if journalists kind of have a leg up on police or mm. like they're competing to get the case solved. Yeah. Um, uh, which is interesting. You'd think that there would be more friendly collaboration between the two, but yeah, uh, it does a good job of showing, you know, the tension between uh, those two lines of work. Um, mm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Nice. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, that is streaming on Hulu. Um, 
It's a Hulu original film. It uh, came out last week, but uh, yeah, it's streaming on Hulu. And I think that'll just about do it for this episode of The Obsessive Viewer. Um, Sam, thank you so much for joining me once again. Um, It's always a blast to talk to you. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you and your work on the interwebs? Sure. Um, you can find my work at midwestfilmjournal.com and you can also follow me on Letterboxd at uh, Sam Movie Man. Nice. And uh, going back to our Cronenberg conversation, you were recently on an episode of Media, Medium Cool uh, talking about uh, Infinity Pool, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So check that out. I think that was one of the more recent episodes. Uh, yeah, we talk about Brandon Cronenberg and his uh, kind of uh, how he explores similar themes as his father. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good stuff. Nice. Well, I'll put a link to all of this stuff in the show notes as well, of course. Um, yeah, and of course, you can find my stuff at obsessiveviewer.com. Uh, also, check out Tower Junkies and Anthology, and also check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start playing us out. So, Sam, once again, thank you uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me, and, uh, and yeah, look forward to have you on again soon. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, once again, check out patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. And, uh, and yeah, also Tower Junkies, like I said, but Tiny and I are finally starting the Dark Tower series, so check that out. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes... TV book and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. My brain cannot accept, um, for whatever reason, like when I know that there are production issues and a certain yeah. thing in a movie irks me that something else was actually intended especially when I find it out. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. I can for sure understand that. But also... Look, sometimes to a film's detriment. I'm sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, no, but you're I, fine. I feel like I've talked about this before. Like, I remember finding out that Django Unchained was written for Will Smith. Oh, And he no. didn't want to do it. Like, okay. Quentin Tarantino wrote it with Will Smith in mind. So anytime I watch Django Unchained, and it's so stupid, it's so <laughs> dumb, because movies are written all the time where they yeah. didn't get the actor that they wanted. But um, I just think, well, they didn't get Will Smith, so it's not the movie that Quentin Tarantino intended, which okay. I hate. That's so dumb. That's, that's, that is wrong. If you're listening to this, don't do that. <laughs> but my point is, that's what my brain does. Okay. That makes sense. But I also think that it's the movies are a, they're a collaborative process. They're also, they are, they are, they are are contingent on so many different factors. So like scream two and scream three were both, that's a second rear window reference. Huh? Yep. Um, that they, um, that that like Scream Two and Scream Three were also very very like Scream Two had to be rewritten because of because right. uh, um, of leaks script leaks and everything right um so so yeah I understand that but it's 
it's something to kind of um you know you just have to letting go you yeah. just have to accept what you get like yes. the movie is what it is this podcast was edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts for exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.